Welcome to Committee Corridor, the parliamentary podcast that takes you out of the House of Commons chamber and upstairs to the select committee rooms. Here, members of parliament from different political parties join forces to unpack some of the biggest issues facing us today. Select committees are independent from government. This gives us a unique point of view. We make recommendations based on the evidence we receive from you and the government must respond. The big issues, the big thinkers and the big ideas required to solve them. I'm Darren Jones, Chair of the House of Commons Select Committee for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. I'm the Member of Parliament for Bristol Northwest. I'm delighted to accept the baton for this second series from Tom Tudenhat. So what's in store? Well, there's no getting away from the cost of living crisis. In a moment, we'll be joined by the Chairs of the Work and Pensions and Women and Equalities Committees. Caroline Noakes is Chair of the Women and Equalities Committee, which holds the government to account on equality law and policy. Caroline is a Conservative MP, representing Romsey and Southampton North. Sir Stephen Timms is the Labour MP for East Ham. He chairs the Commons Work and Pensions Committee, which recently called for a more agile social security system, which can adapt to turbulent economic times. But first, I want to set the scene for our Cost of Living series to understand more about how we got here and how we might deal with it. Torsten Bell is Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, an independent think tank focused on improving the living standards of those on low to middle incomes. So Torsten, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. We've talked about cost of living crises in the past. Is this just another one? Or is there something unique about the cost of living crisis we're facing today? Well, the, the scale of what's happening this year is definitely not just another year in a long list of difficult years for British households. The scale of the energy rises, as we've been surprised by right the way through this year, has been higher than people were expecting. But it's like nothing we've seen in any living memory. That's true for households. It's also true for businesses seeing very fast rises in energy prices. And that's proving obviously a big challenge, not just for people, but for policymakers, both at the Treasury and at the Bank of England. And that's why presumably the government's announced a huge intervention on energy prices. Do you think that intervention will just deal with the cost of living crisis, given that that seems to be the main driver of it? Well, one of the really depressing things about the current world is that obviously we can't deal with the cost of living crisis because it's being driven by us being poorer as a country because we're an energy importer and energy's become more expensive. So really what we're doing is deciding who is going to bear the burden of that and when and what the government's package, which is very, very large package, capping energy bills at 2500 for the typical energy user household uh, this winter, it will make a really big difference, but it will also not prevent it being a really difficult winter because for lots of households, their energy bills will still be near doubling from what they've been used to before this energy crisis kicked off. And obviously, the flip side of us all receiving a lot of protection for our household finances is that public finances are taking the strain. And we don't yet know how the government plans to pay for the energy intervention. We're kind of assuming it might be levels of debt. Does that make it easier or harder for us to deal with during the cost of living crisis? We're choosing that future taxpayers will bear more of that pain rather than today's bill payers. So that does mean higher borrowing today and it means lastingly higher debt into the future. I think that's a reasonable thing for a government faced with a huge cost of energy increase 
a good chunk of which we shouldn't be confident at all about how much, but a good chunk of which is probably temporary. So a significant amount of borrowing to help us through that winter, I think, is reasonable. What we're not doing, though, is having a serious conversation about, yes, we need to borrow lots, but are there things we could do to minimise the ask on future taxpayers, but also to minimise the pressure on the Bank of England to respond to what the Treasury is doing by borrowing in a really very significant amounts, well over £100 billion, probably what that means in terms of higher interest rates. And, and it's by going ahead with a policy that looks pretty similar to what the government is doing, which was always inevitable by the time we'd seen wholesale prices spike so high over the summer, but then doing what's necessary to minimise the downsides of that. And what does this mean for workers? We've just started to look at the labour market in the UK on the select committee. Uh, we know there are lots of vacancies in the economy, relatively high levels of employment. Uh, how will this crisis affect the labour market, do you think? Well, there's good and bad news for workers. The good news right now is, as you say, we have a tight labour market. There's still quite a lot of vacancies. The numbers are starting to now come down, but there's still very high vacancy levels given very low levels of unemployment. And that tight labour market is to some degree translating for lots of workers, not for all, but for lots of workers into higher than we are used to pay rises, which are now settling in the kind of 5% a year uh, level. We maybe haven't seen that for quite some time. But unfortunately, that's nominal wages. But real wages, which i.e. what our wages can actually buy in the shops, are obviously falling, even though we're seeing faster than normal nominal wage rises. And that's because of the high inflation that high energy prices have given us. And that's obviously bad news because it's making us all poorer. And that is, again, is about this big discussion about how we're deciding who's bearing the cost of higher prices this year. And obviously, then the longer term bad news of that is that because the Bank of England thinks we need quite a significant loosening of the labour market to prevent permanent higher inflation becoming entrenched, they're saying to us, we need to get the unemployment level up. We need to get it up to near 5% rather than its current low levels. And that's what higher interest rates are aiming to do. So we need more people to lose their jobs. Yeah, I mean, the Bank of England is not saying it's good that more people are losing their jobs, but it's saying our job is to control inflation and the current levels of low unemployment aren't consistent with that. And presumably these pressures are underpinning the increasing number of strikes that we're seeing across the country. One of the kind of things I think that's missing from the public debate is just understanding that when you have an energy price shock leading to high inflation, because that is just a big national discussion about who gets poorer and by how much, it's totally inevitable that a period seeing those energy price shocks is also one where you see large numbers, not even large numbers, larger than we are used to. The absolute numbers are still pretty small in our economy, but larger numbers of strikes as people contest you know, the split of that pain between workers and between their employers. Ministers often say the challenges we're facing in the UK are being faced in other countries around the world. It's about the Russian war in Ukraine. It's about coming out of the COVID pandemic. It's about inflationary pressures across the the world. How valid is that argument? In terms of the big picture, what is causing today's pain, then obviously it's correct that lots of countries, particularly European countries, are facing similar shocks from the energy price rises. And that's obviously because we're more dependent. The European gas market is more dependent on Russian gas than the rest of the world. And so the increase in gas prices is more acute here because of the cost of getting gas from elsewhere means that the US, for example, is seeing some higher gas prices, but it's nowhere near as acute as we are facing in Europe. And then within Europe, 
To some degree, we are facing slightly higher pressures on energy because we use a lot of gas to generate our electricity. That's the big distinguishing feature. It's not, you know, it's true we don't actually directly import a lot of Russian gas. Ours mainly comes from Norway, but that doesn't matter within a European gas market as a whole. As prices have risen, we do consume quite a lot of gas for electricity generation, and so that's why we're seeing somewhat higher energy price increases in some other countries. But I think big picture, the short term isn't that different here compared to the rest of Europe. I think what is different is that we are coming into this crisis on the back of a 15 years of you know really disappointing economic performance. We've been in relative decline versus most large European countries during that phase, definitely compared to the United States. And that means that, for example, workers haven't seen a real terms pay rise in 15 to 20 years. And so then on top of that, you're asking them to bear big living standard pressures now, but they haven't got a lot of margins to adjust. Poor households have been getting poorer for quite some time, and they've already had to increase the percentage of their budgets that they spend on essentials like energy, like housing. And so they don't have lots of luxuries they can now cut when this new crisis comes along. So the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, former Business Secretary, have said economic growth is at the heart of their agenda. After 12 years of being in government, after austerity, Brexit, albeit COVID was an unwelcome addition, Liz Truss has said tax cuts are the way to get the economy moving. What evidence is there to suggest that's the correct approach? So focusing on growth is definitely the correct approach. I think it's become a bit too fashionable on the left and the right to say that growth is not even something we should be aiming for. On the left, that's sometimes because people think that a lack of growth is the best way to deal with our net zero, our climate ambitions. And on the right, it's because some people are less fussed about growth these days. Mainly lots of voters are older and aren't working. And so their income isn't dependent on what the labor market and the economy is doing right then. John Redwood told me the other day that we didn't need to do any trade anymore because it was good to produce all our food domestically. And it didn't really matter if that made us poorer. So I think that's an, there's an issue which is generally a lot of people have become wary of growth. Sometimes people say, oh, growth doesn't feed through into ordinary workers' living standards anymore, so we shouldn't even aim for it. I think it's really important to understand that is not true. The reason why wages have not been growing in the last 20 years is because of two factors. One, we haven't had any growth or very little growth. And two, because we've had high inflation in two bouts, including driven by sterling depreciating during the financial crisis and after Brexit and now again today. So we do want growth. It does matter people's living standards. The government's right to focus on it. A focus narrowly on tax cuts as your growth strategy is unlikely to deliver lasting effects on growth. In terms of you providing a big fiscal impulse, big fiscal support, extra borrowing to support households this year, that will make some difference to short-term growth, but that will dissipate quickly because the Bank of England in response will push up interest rates faster than it otherwise would have done to make sure that growth doesn't last. So the overall size of your economy isn't permanently increased by those kind of tax cuts unless it leads to changes in investment by businesses or the number of people that are in work or how productive they are. And if you look across the world, there's no strong evidence that lower taxes lead to faster growth rates. Almost all of the countries that perform better than us in Europe, higher growth in the recent past, higher levels of productivity, higher living standards actually have slightly higher tax rates than we do. So big picture, the role of tax in determining growth in both directions, actually, because some people say, oh, if we have higher tax rates, that will also boost growth. I think people on both sides, if they want to see growth, need to focus a bit less on tax. Is there any evidence to suggest how Brexit is affecting the cost of living crisis? So Brexit's not the underlying driver of the cost of living crisis, which is, as we say, the global spike in gas prices in particular, and some of the unwinding from the pandemic 
which has obviously affected global supply chains, particularly for goods, which is mainly driven by just very strong demand in the United States, sucking in lots of goods and pushing up their global prices. But it's also driven by supply chain difficulties. If we step back to what can we see from Brexit overall, I'd say what we are seeing is isn't is not exactly what was expected at the time of the referendum, where people were very focused on saying, oh, this will mean a lot less trade with Europe in the short term, particularly exports to Europe. What's instead happening is that Britain is just becoming a less open economy with regard to everybody in the world. So we're doing less exporting, less importing, more generally, not just when it comes to Europe. And in the long run, that is a route to being poorer as a country because lots of the drivers of living standards growth over the last you know, few decades are associated with the openness of our economy. It doesn't mean you know. It doesn't mean you want to be open on every single aspect. And clearly, there's big trade-offs, as our farmers are now pointing out, with regard to the trade deal with Australia. But the big picture of becoming a less open economy that making us less specialised, maybe doing some kinds of, for example, if we look at manufacturing. I think a lot of people hope Brexit would lead to a manufacturing boost. But the kinds of manufacturing it looks like it will see more workers doing is food manufacturing, which is obviously low productivity, low pay food trade barriers tend to lead to bigger shifts in production. So we'll do more agriculture in the UK, we'll do more food manufacturing, but these are pretty low productivity, low paying sectors. And overall, what it does is make the country poorer. And you've recently said that in the UK, we have a toxic combination of low growth and high inequality. The government's talking a lot about growth. In my view, maybe not so much about inequality. If you had an elevator pitch with the new prime minister, what should she be doing on inequality? Well, I think our, the big picture is that the, the two together, Britain's had high inequality, you know, we've got the large, highest inequality of any large European country, has had that consistently broadly since the 1980s and the early 1990s. And then we've since in the last 15 years, so more recently, we've combined that high inequality with very low growth rates. It's not over the top to say we have been in a period of relative decline where other countries have pulled further ahead of us. And the two together, they're not toxic for the top, for the richest households. And British Britain's richest households are still on a comparable level of living standards with the countries where you would broadly consider us similar to Australia, Canada, and the Netherlands, Germany. The rich are not worse off than the rich in those countries, but the middle and the bottom are much poorer than those countries, much poorer than people normally appreciate. If you took the average of those five countries, and if you include France, then the middle household is £8,800 poorer than those countries. And that is because of low growth and high inequality, meaning that the middle receives less of the pie in the UK compared to those countries. So my overall pitch would be, it is the combination of the two that is really, really hammering middle income and lower income Britain. If you get growth up, that is really important. And you shouldn't listen to people that say to you that doesn't matter because it does matter for the middle and the bottom. But if you don't also get inequality down, you will still leave middle and lower income Britain far behind those other countries. And that shouldn't be what a thriving democracy looks like in the 21st century. You need a benefit system that supports those at the bottom who won't be lifted by growth automatically. And you need a labour market that provides rising wages, not just at the top, where we do have high rewards in the UK, but for the middle too. Because we've, the minimum wage is obviously helping at the bottom. We've actually seen hourly wage inequality fall at the bottom and catching up with the middle. But we're, what we haven't seen is that the middle doing particularly well. And that's going to take a renewed focus on what a decent labour market looks like. And lastly, how long do we think the cost of living crisis is going to go on for? Well, that's a million dollar question. I mean, it's now impossible for it to be done or even to be easing significantly by the spring of 2023. You can live in hope that 
If energy markets see that Europe can cope with significantly reduced energy imports over the course of this winter, then these spikes that you've seen over the summer of wholesale gas prices, which are really people panicking that we can't cope without very significant shutdowns, could ease. We should see inflation at least falling back in the second half of 2023. Obviously, there are other things going on, though, which is at some point these rises in interest rates, which are now markets are pricing in not just very large individual countries, but coordinated large interest rate rises right across the developed world on a scale that people, if you'd asked them a year ago, would have thought was completely impossible. Those will start to translate into slowing economies, which are also being slowed by those higher energy costs. And so it will move from a direct price cost of living crisis to a slowdown in labour markets. And that will translate into lower wage growth and higher unemployment. So, And that will tend to lead to a more concentrated pain particularly if it's energy and it's essential shared out across the population and hurts the poorest in particular, if it moves into a labour market size of pain, then it's obviously those losing their jobs who bear that in a concentrated fashion. Torsten Bell, thanks for joining us. I'm now joined by two parliamentarians to take a closer look at the issues which Torsten Bell has just been setting out for us. Caroline Noakes is chair of the Women and Equalities Committee, which holds the government to account on equality law and policy. Caroline is a Conservative MP, representing Romsey and Southampton North. Sir Stephen Timms is the Labour MP for East Ham. He chairs the Commons Work and Pensions Committee, which recently called for a more agile social security system, which can adapt to turbulent economic times. So Stephen, Torsten Bell just gave us some good and bad news for workers. He said that low levels of unemployment aren't consistent with keeping inflation down and that we should expect more people to lose their jobs. Is there sufficient support in the system for people that find themselves in those circumstances? Well, there is an obvious worry at the moment about the prospect of unemployment rising over the next few months. And so we are setting out on an inquiry on the government's plan for jobs and on the support which is provided for unemployed people at the moment. And there was a lot announced early on in the pandemic. Unemployment at that time didn't rise as much as was expected. Some of those interventions are still around. So we're going to be having a look at whether what is going to be available in the next year or two is going to be up to the job that we are going to need it to do. I think there is potential to significantly improve support, particularly perhaps for for people who are out of work on, on health grounds. We think there's more that can be done there, but we will be looking at the position across the board and hopefully be able to make some recommendations to the government about improving it uh, early in the new year. Presumably, Stephen, you're worried about the scale of the demand for support for unemployment services. We've had very low levels of unemployment for quite some time now. Is there just enough people and access points for workers across the country to access? Well, there was a big increase in the number of people working in job centres for the pandemic. That's now been scaled back. But presumably, that means that the Department of Work and Pensions could quite quickly increase the number again if it needed to, having had that experience during the pandemic. So I would hope that the department is going to be sufficiently agile to keep up with the, the demand, which is likely to emerge quite soon now. 
Caroline, it's early days for your inquiry into the development of the government's national disability strategy, which was published in July 2021. The former Prime Minister Boris Johnson pledged to tackle the disadvantage faced by the 14 million people in the UK with disabilities. Will you be looking at the cost of living crisis as part of the development of the national disability strategy? Well, we certainly saw during the pandemic that it was particularly disabled people. It was Black, Asian and people from other minoritised ethnic communities who were disproportionately hit. And it was also there was a gendered economic impact. So I think there are some parallels that could be drawn. I think my primary concerns are around disabled people who may well be reliant on particular equipment that is energy intensive, people who are on medications that have to be kept at certain temperatures. And I think that's a real worry. But it's also the elderly, those who are at home all day needing to be able to heat their homes, who may well really feel the energy crisis impacting them. And I think there are some interesting questions around women. And there is no specific reason instinctively why women should be impacted more than men. But I would argue that it is women who have been right at the front line of noticing the cost of living crisis creeping up on us. We know that food bills have gone through the roof. And although it is a stereotype that grieves me, we did learn during the pandemic that it was women who were picking up the greatest share of household chores. They were the ones who were going out and doing the shopping in the supermarkets. And it is female constituents who have been coming to me talking about the cost of ordinary groceries, the cost of their children's school shoes, everything has gone up significantly. And so I think what the pandemic taught us is that you have to be aware of the different impact on different communities. You have to be aware that some of us will ride out the cost of living crisis without noticing much impact, whereas there will be families in all of our constituencies who really do feel that when they have to turn the heating down by a couple of degrees, when they can't afford to be using their ovens to heat food, that they're literally looking at what they're able to cook in terms of not what's the most nutritious for their children, not what they like to eat, but actually what's going to be the cheapest to heat up. Uh, You really do have to start worrying about how we can target support to those who are going to need it the most. And on that targeting of support, the report from your committee recently recommended that the government use more equality impact assessments when thinking about how they target support to people in the country. Did ministers take that on board? I think it would be fair to say there was a mixed picture. And I can remember one minister in particular coming in front of my committee, I will name her, Joe Churchill, no longer in a department, but a whip. And Joe was very clear absolutely adamant that you had to look very closely at equality impact assessments, that you had to understand your public sector equality duty, not treat it like some sort of box ticking exercise. And she really stood out as somebody who got it. What I think I worry about is those ministers who want to suppress equality impact assessments, those ministers who are in some way scared to share their findings with us, because actually we need transparency, we need openness. And I hope that the new government and the prime minister will have an attitude towards sharing that information, letting us all see where the impacts of policies are going to fall and enabling us as select committees to perhaps scrutinise very carefully those impacts and give some pointers and recommendations to the government as to how they can mitigate them. Presumably those would be done by the Treasury, would they, the Equality Impact Assessments? 
Yes, there are some done by the Treasury, um, but some done in department. And that's the reality is that we need across government there to be what I would argue for is uniformity, that they all be carried out in the same way and published. Please let us see the outcomes of the work that we know is being done. Oh, we know the work is being done, do we? Yeah, I think we do. Yeah. And I'm confident that equality impact assessments are undertaken where they are required. And of course, that's that's an interesting point, isn't it? That I would prefer to see assessments done against all policies, against all proposed legislation. So we actually have a greater level of understanding rather than an attitude of, well, if we don't have to do this, we won't bother. Actually, let's, let's understand. Let's understand what impact policies are going to have on people who are already the most marginalized in all of our constituencies. And Stephen, a report that you recently published on your committee was looking at the measures the government had put in place to try and help households with the rising cost of living. Uh, And you raised some concerns, particularly around the safety nets that people rely on. Presumably, you share some of Caroline's concerns then. Yes, I do. And our report was published in July. One very short-term measure we argued for, which unfortunately the government has rejected, uh, was that the current deductions from universal credit, an awful lot of people claiming universal credit are not getting the full amount of benefit because they're repaying an advance or a tax credit debt or, or something. We said the government should suspend those deductions for the time being. They did that during the pandemic. And lots of people commented that that made an enormous difference to helping hard-pressed people get through a very difficult period. We think we're in the same position again now that it should be done again. The government has so far declined to do that. But I hope they will think hard about that over the next few weeks. We raised a number of other points in our report. We pointed out, for example, that at the moment, Universal credit and other benefits are uprated in April in line with the previous September's inflation figure. So that meant last April, the uprating was 3.1% at a time when actually inflation by then was around 10%. So we say that the government really should come up with a smarter and quicker way of using the data to keep benefits uprated sensibly. We also pointed out about the benefit cap. You know, the benefit cap was introduced 10 years ago. It's only ever been changed once and it was reduced in 2016. When it was first introduced, it was supposed to make sure that households didn't get any more in benefit income than a median earning household would expect to receive. But after all these years, with no change at all in the benefit cap, other than to reduce it in 2016, that level now bears no relation at all to earnings or anything else, really. With inflation at the current level, if the benefit cap is not uprated next April, we're going to have terrible problems for a very large number of of households as people's benefit income crashes into the cap and, and, and is reduced as a result. We said the government ought to look at the overall level of benefits because they are historically at a very low level at the moment. We also queried why the government has put £1.5 billion into the Household Support Fund to be handed out by local authorities. That may be a helpful thing to do, but you know, if there's a couple of billion pounds there, maybe it would be better to put it properly into the mainstream social security system rather than handing it over to local councils. And Stephen, the former Chancellor Rishi Sunak said that he couldn't 
tweak the payments very often because of the IT system. Did you look at that on the committee? Is that right? Yes, we did. And I think he's he's right. The problem is not with universal credit, but the older system, which a lot of people are still receiving benefits from, people still getting employment support allowance, job seeker allowance, those legacy benefits are run on creaking IT systems. And we said during the pandemic that they ought to be upgraded so that there could be a, a smarter, quicker uprating arrangement. With universal credit, of course, Rishi Sunak increased it absolutely rightly by £20 a week overnight at the start of the pandemic. So there's no problem in uprating universal credit quickly, but it's the older benefits where there is a problem. And unfortunately, that has not yet been fixed. Caroline, there's obviously been a debate going on recently about whether benefits should be uprated to match inflation. What's your view on that question? Well, look, I'm very much with a number of members of the cabinet who have made their views clear that it is not advisable, I think, to give with one hand for government to look at that energy package that it is giving to people who are in the most need to support their energy bills in the cost of living crisis and effectively to take away with the other hand by not uprating benefits in line with inflation. We are all impacted by inflation. So I think it's absolutely imperative that the government understands they've given support for energy, but they also need to give wider support with every other area of the cost of living that has increased. And whether that is food, clothing, transport, people need to be able to afford to get to work. They need to be able to afford to feed their families. So I have said quite clearly, I support those members of the cabinet, including people like Penny Mordaunt, who have come out and said, yes, we should be uprating benefits in line with inflation. Well, I think there's agreement all round on that on this podcast today. Uh, and Caroline, you've also announced a, an inquiry from your committee looking at the development of the government's national disability strategy, which was published in July. Uh, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson pledged to tackle the disadvantage faced by the 14 million people in the UK that have some form of disability. How do you think the cost of living crisis will factor into your inquiry? And do you think the government sees it as an important part of its national disability strategy? Well, the disability strategy was launched with 100 immediate commitments for disabled people. And I think the lens of the inquiry is to look at it and see, are they delivering on those commitments? Are they making life better for people with disabilities? And the cost of living crisis, you have to be aware that there will be people with disabilities who are very high energy users, who are using electricity to charge up their powered wheelchairs, who are using electricity to have hoists and other specialist equipments in their own home, allowing them to live independently. And what, and what do we want for disabled people? We actually want them to be able to lead as independent and successful life as they possibly can. So they need all of those adjustments and assistance and that may well make them high energy users. So I think it's an inevitability that the cost of living crisis will give us a perspective on how well the national disability strategy is doing. But I think in addition to that, and I've discussed with my committee clerks that actually come the new year, we should perhaps be looking at quite separate work on the cost of living crisis and how it has impacted all of those in disadvantaged groups and those with protected characteristics. And I think that that's really important is that we get a very clear picture of exactly what is happening to people's lives, how they are being impacted, whether through employment, whether through their energy costs, whether it's their ability to feed themselves, to carry out their daily lives as they wish. And I think we have to be very concerned that a period of rising unemployment and rising bills at the same time is going to put a real pressure 
on ordinary families and pensioners, people with disabilities, on children, and on minoritized communities. So I think it's uh, it's critical that the committee steps up and has a look at that and, and makes some recommendations to the government as to how they can improve their performance. Right. Finally, to both of you, you're both in a lift in the House of Commons. Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, enters the lift. What would be your elevator pitch to Liz Truss? Caroline Noakes. So my pitch to the Prime Minister is one of the frustrations I've noticed over the course of the past two years since I've been doing this job as Select Committee Chair is the inclination of government ministers to insist on looking at everything in the round. Actually, we have to be far more uh, focused and targeted. And I would urge the Prime Minister to look at individual communities, look at individual protected characteristics, recognise that the cost of living crisis is impacting women, it's impacting people with disabilities, it's impacting the elderly, and not try and have a one-size-fits-all approach to solving it. And Stephen Timms. I think I'd quote something the Archbishop of York said in his sermon at the church service at the beginning of the Labour Party conference this year. He said, increasingly, the safety net in our nation is a food bank where more and more people have to go to get what our economy itself fails to provide. We've got to fix that flaw in the economy. The first thing I would do would be to abolish the five-week wait for universal credit, which I think really really means that the social security system at the moment is not fit for purpose because you have to wait five weeks after applying for your first regular benefit payment. And if my elevator pitch can sort of extend over a rather longer period, I'd certainly suggest the Prime Minister should review the very historically low levels of benefit we're paying to people at the moment. According to the House of Commons Library, support for an unemployed single adult without housing costs as a proportion of average earnings is less today than when Lloyd George introduced unemployment benefit in 1911. These are very, very low levels of benefit and we've got to uprate them. Well, thank you both Stephen Timms and Caroline Nooks for joining us today. The cost of living crisis is a serious issue affecting millions of people, businesses and public services across the country. I hope you agree that Torsten Bell, Sir Stephen Timms and Caroline Noakes have set the scene for some of the interesting discussions that we need to have in Parliament to try to help our constituents and communities across the country. We'll be picking up these issues in future episodes on jobs and on the workforce and on the energy crisis. We'll also consider the impact of the UK's climate pledges on the current crisis being faced domestically here in the UK. You can listen to every episode of Committee Corridor, including catching up on our first season wherever you get your podcasts or visit us on www.parliament.uk forward slash Committee Corridor. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, review and leave us a recommendation. I've been Darren Jones MP, Chair of the Business Committee, and you've been listening to Committee Corridor. Thank you for listening.